0: Grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14, we want to read the first 13 verses. Uh, passage I'm sure that we are familiar with, but the way Matthew uh, lays it out, I think, would be uh, a few things worth pointing out there. Matthew 14, if you'll stand with me, I'll to God's word. We'll read the first, I say 12 up there, but it's going to be the first 13 verses. Matthew, the evangelist, writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod has seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. She brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always as we gather together that you would be so kind as to help us to understand your word. So open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our hands and our feet and our mouth, that we would go to you in obedience. And what a what a, uh, what a text we have in front of us. Familiarity often. Uh, causes us to 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 overlook its significance, but may we not make that mistake this evening. Um, the end of a faithful prophet. May you raise many like him. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son. We pray. Amen. Although it's a tricky thing to do, I, I find stories, whether it be a a novel or a movie or show or something, that can um, utilize flashbacks to help. Um, to help carry on the story in in the presence, right? And and maybe there's a few that that come to mind. There's been a few shows my wife and I have have watched over the years that that each episode, or at least most of the episodes, would have some sort of flashback. and, And that event in the past would help uh, explain the events happening in the present. In fact, my wife and I we snuck away for the weekend without the kids to the glory of God. And uh, the movie we watched Friday evening was very much that. In fact, at one point, the flashback so overwhelmed the main story I almost forgot what the main story was, right? Uh, but but all so but but in order to understand what's happening in the present, uh, the writer will take you to the past. And, and as these events shape them to bring them where they are now, and these events are shaping our main characters for what comes next. Well, that has been an, an old trope really since the beginning of storytelling. And what Matthew does here is he utilizes that trope to tell the story of John the Baptist. So if you were to, to just read through the Gospel of Matthew, You come to chapter 14, the narrative is being interrupted by the fact that Matthew takes us to the past. I'm unaware of when he does this at any other time in in, in his book. Here, the narrative, he's, he's going along and he says, Oh, by the way, let me tell you what happened to John the Baptist some time ago. He pauses the flow of the narrative to take us back to prepare us of what is about to happen in in, in the narrative. So let's start there then with the flashback. Um, In in verse 1 and 2, we were introduced to to a lot of the settings. This was the time of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, uh, we know him as Herod Antipas. And um, in this context, Herod Antipas hears of Jesus and the text tells us, believes that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Now, remember, this is a flashback. So, and this is, this is how we get to the flashback. Because if you're reading the story, you've not heard from John for quite a while. And now you've discovered raised from the dead, that means he must be dead, right? This is news to, to the reader. And so that is where, where uh, Matthew then says, well, let me explain to you how it is that, that John died. But that connection is important. When he hears of Jesus, he says, oh, no, John has come back from the dead. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I'm not sure Antipas really believes John the Baptist is walking among us. But I, what I think you have here is a guilty conscience. That, that throughout history, the belief is, is that if you chop the head off of the dragon or the snake, everything else would, would go along with it. And perhaps John or, or Herod Antipas here thinks that if we get rid of John, the whole movement will scatter and no one will be as critical of me. But now with Jesus rising, preaching the same message we saw last week, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He begins to think, oh no, not only has John returned, not in a literal sense, I don't think, but he is returned with the vengeance, for Jesus is drawing larger crowds and having a greater impact. So, this is quite a news flash for Herod. And that takes us to the flashback starting in verse three. For Herod had seized John, right? Now, before we look at the story, we need to pause here. This is going to be the part that's going to confuse the both of us, okay? I've tried this all week, and uh, it's not the first time I've looked at this text. Uh, and I always get confused on this, which means you're going to be confused on this, and I think everybody's going to get confused on this. In order to understand the events that happen here, we've got to talk about Herod's messed up family line. If you're from eastern Kentucky, a lot of this will probably make sense, okay? Because uh, there's a lot of—well, you, you, you'll see, okay? So uh, this may help us. I'm not going to look at it because it's just going to confuse me more. Sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't, okay? So here we go. Herod, the so-called great, Herod I, we saw uh, last week. Remember, in contrast between Zechariah, the, the lowly priest, Herod, the so-called great king, Herod I. He had a, a number of sons. Now, he was the king. He was really a governor, but he took the title of king because he had an ego the size of a college basketball coach. And, and so he, he calls himself king, and instead of giving his kingdom to one of his sons, he decides to divide it into three parts. So one of those sons is a man by Herod Antipas that we see here. Now you need to know each of these sons that get a part of his kingdom are half-brothers because Herod had like five wives and Don't forget, we we talked about last week, that Herod had actually executed several of his other sons. So these are the sons that survived the the tyranny of of their fathers. And now Antipas, uh, uh, he has a part of it. Now his ultimate goal is to reunite the kingdom of Herod. Now we won't explore that in great detail because that's where I just really get lost and I think it'll be a distraction to us. Which in that part of, of that sort of power dynamics and power politics will play a role in Herodias and Salome. And everything else, but for our purposes, you've got Herod who has three sons who are who have three little kingdoms themselves. They're all half brothers. Okay, Herod Antipas's half brother married um, Herodias. Okay, now um, this is. Herodias now becomes both Antipas's sister-in-law and I believe niece or something like that. I, I, I don't know. Just just stick with me, it's gonna get weird. Okay, stick with me. Um so so she is both the daughter and the wife of two of Herod's sons. Okay. Now, this is not Herodias's first marriage. She she will move on. Okay, so She's married to Philip, Antipas's half-brother. She leaves Philip and has a relationship with Antipas that leads to marriage. Okay? So Antipas is marrying his half-brother's wife, who is also his niece. There's a word for that. It's called incest. And just ickiness, right? I mean, do, do we have to have terms for all of this stuff? It's just ickiness. You, you don't do this. You talk about ruining Christmas, okay? Uh, this this is this is uh, just just terrible, terrible thing, and this of course creates a lot of inner family conflict. Of course, it does. And so, so what you have among all this is Herodias seems to be someone who's attracted to men with power and men who will gain more power. So she becomes this, this player in, in, in the background who does things to push her husband to, 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 to get more authority and everything else. What she wants is, is for Antipas to, to have more control, more power, more influence, to be greater than his father Herod I. Well, no wonder then John the Baptist found with, among these uh, political leaders an easy target for his preaching. Now remember, Herod has one message. If you were to go to his church every week, he would say the same thing. He'd preach the same sermon. And the sermon was, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that language of the kingdom is the language of a king. Because what he's not saying is, Repent, for Herod Antipas is at hand. But rather, there is a true and greater king at hand, and he's coming, and he's going to hold you accountable. So immediately, John the Baptist is is confronting, in a very radical way, someone who claims to be a king, and John says, you will be overthrown by a, a true and better king. It's a radical message. So there's a political bent, or at least the way it would have been interpreted by Antipas, not to mention Herodias and everyone else in the administration. There's also a theological bent to it, and that is that your kingdom will fall, but the only hope you have is if you repent and believe the gospel. Now, what bothered Herod the most was, yes, this is a political challenge, but deeper than that was the religious challenge that John would call Herod out for his incestuous, debaucherous lifestyle, that God will throw him down. God will condemn him. This is the the message of judgment. Now, as you can imagine, uh, they didn't receive this with open arms. There is a lot of argument where people say, well, people are soft now. They don't like hard uh, 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 preaching and teaching and whatnot. And there's some truth to that. We, we are raising um, um, a sissified culture. There's no doubt about that. At the same time... No one has ever liked being called a terrible sinner about to be thrown into the fires of hell by God, right? No one's ever liked that mess. Not like, you know, 60 years ago, people woke up like, you know, I kind of don't like that anymore. No one's ever liked that. We love it when you throw it at those other people. What we don't like is when it's turned against us and we're being the, the ones being told that we, we are evil. So what you have then is Herod and Herodias don't like this barking dog trying to destroy them, calling them out for, for wickedness. And so you see there, verse 5, that uh, Antis Antipas wanted to put John to death. Now, what we, now, now, if you were to go up to Antipas and say, now, Antipas, that, that's not very nice. People should be free to say what it is they they want to say, even if you disagree it. And he, of course, would say, I believe in free speech. I just don't believe in hate speech. So down with the prophet, right? Am I getting this right? Is that how it works now? Right? I believe in free speech, just not all free speech, right? I think that's how it goes now. Like, if you say something that offends me, your life should be ruined. That's basically what... What uh, Antipas is, is doing here. Now, you'll notice that the reason he didn't have him put to death wasn't because of conscience or because of righteousness, but because of political fear. John was popular. And people love to hear his message, of course, because no one liked the, the Herods. No one liked them. And so when you target the Herods and you call them out for what they are, you're going to get a following on the Twitter, and that's what's happened to John. And so Herod knows that if he goes after John, that is political dynamites. And so he fears uh, the crowd. Now here we see the attitude of a politician. By the way, we'll see this later in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 21, although they were seeking to arrest him, this is Jesus, they feared the crowds, these are the religious elites, because they held him to be a prophet. And, and I think we're supposed to see these two passages put together. What you have is a false king um, fearing the crowd with John. What you have are false priests fearing the crowd and refusing to to deal with Jesus. We are meant to see the ministries of John and Jesus as having some overlap. The difference, of of course, Jesus being Savior and John being um, prophet. But ultimately, what, what we see in the story is that Herod is a man of great cowardice. He has power. He has money. He has influence. But deep down, he is an insecure coward. He is afraid of his wife. He is afraid of um, the crowd. He's afraid of the people. He is afraid of John. I shared with you the story several weeks ago of Mary, Queen of Scots, making the comment that she feared the prayers of John more than a thousand armies. And that's the situation uh, Herod Antipas finds himself in. And so in an effort to keep his power or really even to expand his power, he knows he has to remain popular. So instead of executing John, he puts him in a prison. Now these prisons aren't what they are today. Basically, John was put in a hole in the ground, a dungeon. And if no one gives him food, because the state isn't going to, he will die of starvation and loneliness. And, and that may explain uh, some of people coming to Jesus. Remember some of Jesus' disciples were disciples of John? It's very possible that, that those disciples of Jesus who are associated with John may have been sent by Jesus to feed John. And, and there they, you know, John would, would give them a message and carry it on, and they would bring news to John and, and whatnot, right? This this is this is the way way it worked. If you didn't have people from the outside supporting you, it's a very good chance you're just going to die in prison. It's a very brutal and, and unjust system that, that they had. Well. In verse 6, we, we see that they, they have this party. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herod dies danced before the company, and pleased Herod. And we need to pause there and say, from my understanding, women weren't invited to these things. It's more of a frat party than anything else. If women are present, it is because they are part of the entertainments. So their job was not to be with the boys or invited to, to be part of this big celebration. It was to be part of the debauchery. And these events, and Herod's event, is particularly debauched. There would have been uh, un, unchecked, unlimited access to, to alcohol, women, and everything else. And so here comes Herodias, um, uh, or the daughter of Herodias, Salome. So, so again, remember the situation. Herodotus, and I may get this wrong. Boom, okay. Herodotus. remember, with Antipas, is both Wife, ex-sister-in-law, and niece. Here comes her daughter, which is Antipas's stepdaughter and niece, or something like that. I don't know. I get lost in it, okay? Um, she is the one sent by her mother to entertain the king. Okay? So what was icky is now like Ickier. I don't know if that's a word, but I just made it up. Okay, And you can make up words now, right? Just don't give it a gender, and, 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 and you're okay. It may be the word of the, word of the year next year. I, I don't know. So, so this is the half-knee stepdaughter of Antipas. And from what we can tell, she's likely between the ages of 12 and 14. She is a minor doing this. And and given that she performs, the implication is she didn't wake up one day and pressured into this. There has been a grooming process of women in this courtyard that women were raised to entertain men. That's a problem. So it just gets ickier and ickier. And everything John had warned Herod of now comes to, to, to the head. So she dances for Herod. And I think the implications there are quite obvious. And, and so he is pleased. And in his drunken stupor state, he makes a promise. Notice he promises with an oath. It's, it's a promise promise. It's an oath oath, right? A promise is a type of oath. An oath is a type of promise. But the text wants you to know this is binding. So, so the promises, whatever you ask of, up to half my kingdom. That is a common slogan that was used in, in the ancient world. That, that is that whatever it is you ask me, I'll give it to you. Um, th- that that uh, he would give it to Salome. Now, this is this is a twelve to fourteen year old girl. Now, at this age, you're you're, you're on the cusp of adulthood. We viewed 12 and 14 years rightly as pre-pubescent, pre-pubescent little girls. And that was the case then. But at that age, you know, Mary was probably 13, 14, maybe 15 years old when she gave birth to Jesus. Joseph probably 14 to 16 year olds when he married Mary. So, so, so early teenage years, you were considered adult. But still, you can't change the fact she's probably between the age of 12 and 14. And the family connection is just awful. But he's drunk, but it's his birthday but he's never had a moral uh, 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 part of his body. He has no integrity. He has no character. So, so of course he's going to say something foolish. This is what all these things do. And so when uh, he makes this promise, this oath, notice verse 8, prompted by her mother. Now, now, now remember how, how the story of the Herods works, right? Herod I, in the Nativity story, in Matthew, remember he's the one that orders the, the death of the innocents, Matthew 2. The wise men come and all that. So Herod I is seen in the narrative as another Pharaoh. Because that's what Pharaoh did. And so God had to deliver Israel again through a deliverer despite the slaughter of the innocents. Now what we see with another Herod in Herodias, Antibas' wife, whatever she is. She is portrayed here as a Jezebel. Now, you remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab had the power, but he was full of cowardice. You remember how Ahab was whining and complaining because he wanted a vineyard and, uh, and the dude wouldn't give it to him? And so Jezebel basically just killed him, right, you know, and, and, and gave it to him. Jezebel was the evil conniving woman in, in the story. And Elijah, in confronting Ahab, also confronted Jezebel. And it was to Jezebel he said, when you die, the dogs are going to lick up your blood. And and remember, John the Baptist is a type of Elijah. No wonder then he's confronting a type of Jezebel. In this case, Herodias. So Salome gets this 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 uh, promise, and she first goes to her mother. Why doesn't she go to her, her stepfather or father, for that matter? Now she, she she's going to go to her mother in this 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 weird family dynamic, and so. In her jealousy and vindictiveness, Heroditus demands the unjust execution of John the Baptist. So, Herod receives this news in verses 9 to 11. He he plays the the, the politician, right? The king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Now, now, pause there. there. There is, like, he... He wished he hadn't made that promise. We, we've, we've all seen words come out of our mouth that we wish we could take back. The one that comes to mind immediately is I used to be a substitute teacher, which is where I got the gray hair before I met y'all. And and uh, because I had a master's, I could work with some of the trouble kids quite a bit and it meant more money and more, more opportunities because there were a lot of substitutes that could fit that education profile. And uh, the the classroom was in the back of the gym behind the bleachers, there's a little private room there. And so whenever we would walk them to the bathroom or to the cafeteria or something, they would get into the gym and they would take off running. There's about six, seven of these these students, it it fluctuated. And I don't know how many times I would shout and as I shouted, it, I couldn't grab the words to pull them back. And the words were, hey, 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 no running in the gym. Right? right? Like, that, that's a dumb thing to say, right? It's, it's, like, it's like saying no food in the cafeteria, right? <laughs> no prayer in the sanctuary, right? It just, just doesn't make any sense. See, so he is sorry about, about, about this, but he feels it's too late. But the reality is, it's not too late. As the supposed king of the Jews, he is bound by Jewish law. And Jewish law does not allow the king to simply choose and to pick who he wants to behead. There must be a trial and there must be a process, a due process he's due. Our system is in very many ways borrowed from the Jewish system of justice. This is what makes Jesus' trial so, so horrendous and he is denied such due process. He's arrested at night. It's not public. He goes to the monkey trial with false uh, 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 witnesses, and then he's executed the next day. Right? He doesn't follow the, the law. So, so he doesn't have to, to do that. He could say, well, I get it, but I'm bound to the law here. Every king is bound to the law because the law is greater than the king. It's one of the radical notions that Christianity developed, uh, particularly in, in, in the West. Regardless, you know how the story ends. This political figure who has no no morality left in him. Verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. She brought it to her mother. That's, that's how John dies. It's a terrible way to end in a story like that, isn't it? He didn't do anything wrong. In fact, he did everything God wanted him to do. But the righteous do, in fact, suffer. But what you get in verse 12 is the reason for the flashback. Now, now remember, the point of this passage is not about John. It's about Jesus. Because remember that in the story, it's Antipas hears of Jesus and he gets nervous. The spirit of John the Baptist is back with vengeance. He's got that guilty conscience. So in verse 12, then, we, we... we see that his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. You see the connection? The flashback's over with. So we've been caught up with what happened with John the Baptist, but that sets up with what it is that we are to see with Jesus. And there's a couple things here. First of all, we see that Antipas, his his guilty conscience is haunting him. But he is wrong to assume that the answer to dealing with Jesus is the same answer he can give to John. If you wanted to end the John the Baptist movement, all you had to do was behead him, and the movement was scattered. But if you want to end the ministry of Jesus, you have two options here. You can either crucify him... Or you can crown him. The concern is that the reader is anticipating here, you can crucify him. But watch out, the grave can't hold him down. Which leaves you with the option of crowning him. And so John's disciples go and bury him. And then they come to tell Jesus, Later, Jesus' disciples will go and bury him. But Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. He didn't stay in the tomb. Not only do we see and anticipate the coming of Christ, or or, or the, the triumph of Christ, we get a picture here of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be. In fact, if you want to, go back to chapter 13. This is typical of Matthew. Matthew is broken down into five sermons. The Sermon on the Mount is the first one. The Olivet Discourse is, is the last. Uh, sermon on the Mount is the longest, right? Chapter thirteen is the middle sermon. It's the uh, Kingdom Parables. Um, was it was it this year we went through the parables, or was it the year before? I, I don't remember. Um, but we looked at all the Kingdom Parables uh, some time ago at the first of the year, and uh, we we looked at all of these. So now now notice the language here. Chapter thirteen, verse one. Um, uh, same day, Jesus went out the house and sat beside the sea. The great crowds gathered around him. So he got into a boat and sat down. The whole crowd beneath him. He told them in parables saying, uh, a sower went out, went out So, right? And if you keep going, what is this? It is a kingdom parable. You, you can go down to um, uh, verse 24. He, he put another parable for them. And he said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. You can go down to, to verse 31. He put another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Verse um, um, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seed of five pearls. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. You can go down to verse 51. Have you understood these things? Verse 52, and he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven... You know is in the pattern here? What is Jesus discussing in chapter 13? The kingdom. Who is its king? It's Jesus. So then what, what, what we get in starting in verse 53 to the end of the chapter is that Jesus is a rejected king. The crowds don't love him, particularly in his hometown. This is where he said a prophet is a welcome to his hometown. So here you have Jesus announcing the kingdom is upon you. The kingdom looks like this. It's like a sower goes out to sow seeds. It's like, it's like mustard seed. It's, 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 it's like a, a net full of fish. It's like leaven. It's, it's like uh, weeds and tares. It's, it's all of this. And then we pick up the narrative, but Jesus was rejecting his hometown. They rejected the king. Then we get a story about a king who rejects the prophets. And we are to juxtapose these two rejections. Because on the one hand, we would reject Herod for his debauchery. All the while, here are the, the, the home, hometown heroes of, 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 of Jesus. They too reject Jesus. It's bad enough what Herod did in rejecting John. How much worse is it for, for the rest of the Israelites to reject their king? John rejected Herod as king in announcing that a true and better king was coming. The problem is no one embraced the king that John had prepared the way for. So then what we are to do in the story about Herod is we are to compare and contrast two types of kingdoms. One is the kingdom of God. The other is the kingdom of men. So, so in, the, in chapter 13, we get a glimpse into the kingdom of God. Chapter 14, we get the glimpse of the kingdom of men. And, and, and you ask yourself, which one is more beautiful? Is it on the one hand, the debauchery of men and the corruption of power? Or the one of redemption and salvation and peace and joy? Which one's more beautiful to the reader? History is full of one. One power and corruption and injustice and violence and hatred. Every nation is full of this kingdom. Many homes have this sort of kingdom. Many communities have this sort of kingdom. And it should be rejected. And what should take its place is the kingdom of God brought forward by Jesus. Let me just contrast John the Baptist with Antipas. Antipas was a coward who let others, particularly his wife, control him. John was a bold preacher who proclaimed the truth regardless of his audience, and that is the secret to how the kingdom of God advances in the kingdom of man. And this is where the text goes next: the disciples take Jesus, John's body, and give him a proper uh, burial. But you'll notice that we move from what happened to John to what will happen to Jesus, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And this sets up the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus sees in the rejection of John his own rejection. Herod is a microcosm of mankind. Because it's the same message they both preach. It's the same condemnation they both bring. It's the same rejection they will both suffer. One will be beheaded. The other will be crucified. And so, until we, in, in order to get there, Jesus will have to face cowards and a governor and a petty potentate, much like John will. Regardless, Matthew is preparing the reader to see. Despite the tragic end of John, the kingdom of God marches forth. The kingdom is about to feed his people. The kingdom is about to take on the kingdoms of this world. The king is about to triumph over death and hell itself. Here's the real beauty of this. We see in this text... The kingdom comes for people like Herod. Go back to verse 1. We get the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth. And at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. It's amazing, isn't it? Herod was quick to believe in John's resurrection. But few were quick to believe in Jesus. But if we are to connect the rejection of Jesus and Nazareth and later the cross and the rejection of John the Baptist here at this debauched birthday party, we are to see then that the gospel comes for people like Herod, like you and me. Yet what we are anticipating is not the resurrection of John, who brings with him a sermon. What we are to anticipate is the resurrection of Jesus, who brings with him a kingdom. Look, we would do well if our focus was less on the kingdom of men and more on the kingdom of God. It is far more beautiful. It is far more powerful. And it will last far longer than anything we can build here today. So let us then put our hope not in the prophet but in the Messiah who is indeed risen from the dead. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.